Assalamu alaikum, everybody. Bismillahirrahmanirrahim. Um, very excited to be with you again on a Tuesday night. It's been um, like two weeks since we've been together on a Tuesday night. So it's a very exciting. Um, first, I wanted to just start um, by saying that um, this is a very special evening because we are hitting our 30th Project Illumin Sura. So that's very exciting. It's like a um, it's a milestone, I guess, um, and actually it reminds me of a really beautiful email that I received recently um, from, you know, someone who, who's been following us for a very long time that said, you know, he wanted to spend his um, 30 days of Ramadan each night watching one of our Project Illumin Surahs because he felt that it was really important. He understands that a lot of people want to rush through the Quran, try and read everything, but what is the point of that if you really don't understand the meaning? So I thought that was really beautiful, and now we've covered, or after tonight, we will have covered 30, so there will be one for, for every night, although we're already almost deep into the first 10 days of Ramadan, which is really mind-blowing. Um, this this whole Ramadan, I mean, I don't know, that there's something about time always, I think, since the pandemic, but definitely with Ramadan, and, and it's just like so much happens. Um, time in one way goes slowly and in other ways just speeds by. It's really, it's hard to keep up. Um, so I, you know, um, I want to just call everyone's attention on that note to um, the Sheikh's really beautiful khutbah from last Friday, um, which was on the first Friday of Ramadan, obviously. But, you know, every Ramadan he gives very beautiful talks, um, oftentimes, you know, in a masjid, but, um, you know, of course, recently in our own Usuli space. But I felt like this talk in particular was so powerful because it was just a reminder of, you know, not just that, you know, Ramadan is about fasting and, you know, being hungry and whatever, but the idea of where will you be next Ramadan and that every Ramadan is a, a station and an event, um, a marking in time, and that each one of us has a certain number of Ramadans in our life and that every, you know, it, it's a chance to sort of check in and see where you are. Um, and there were just so many powerful statements um, that I, I feel like because Ramadan has been going so quickly, I have not felt like I've had sufficient time to just be like quiet and reflective and thinking um, in a way that I, you know, feel like I should. I mean, it's just something within myself. I feel like I have not done it enough. Um, I'll, you know, I've done beautiful tarawiyah prayers and iftars and all of that, but the, the taking the time to really just be quiet and think about what it is you want to, to do this Ramadan, where you want to be next Ramadan, who's going to be with you next Ramadan, um, and who's not going to be with you, and what that means, whether it's your, you know, family, um, your parents, you know, even your, if your children are, like, moving out, you know, whatever, I mean, it's like, I think back a year to where we were last Ramadan, it feels like a blink of an eye ago. We were in California, and life was completely different. We didn't even know that we would be here in Ohio. So it just is really, um, you know, mind-expanding to think a year from now, where will you be, um, and to think about what you can do to, to you know, make it a better place, at least spiritually. So that is, it was a really powerful chutbah that I would encourage you to watch if you haven't seen it already. Um, and just a few minor housekeeping items. Um, I just want to thank people who volunteered after um, our, our call for help um, on Saturday for um, people who are interested in helping to with the transcription process and the editing process. We got um, a number of really wonderful um, volunteers, so thank you so much. Um, and um, 
I mentioned to people on a fundraising note that you know we're doing the adopt a sewer program and other things so please visit our donation page and also our launch good page but the one thing that I didn't mention is that um, something that you can do is if you have a PayPal account you can um, identify us, the Institute for Advanced Asuli Studies, our official name, as your favorite charity. So every time that you purchase something through PayPal, you'll see at the very bottom you have an opportunity to choose to donate a dollar. So it's just a nice, very easy way to do something nice for Asuli. So um, it's easy, you just log into your PayPal account and look for where you can set your favorite charity and look us up. Again, it's the Institute for Advanced Asuli Studies. Um, and then the last thing is I just wanted to ask um, for people's prayers. Um, you know, it's it's really um, lovely when people write to us. I mean, it's, it's bittersweet, um, you know, when people write to us asking for prayers for people who have passed. But I feel, like, grateful and touched that people want to reach out and ask for us to pray. So um, over the weekend, um, we there was um, someone in our community who lost their grandmother from COVID um, in uh, Egypt. So um, please pray, um, that was Otto. Um, and then today, um, another um, one of our, our community, um, Miret, lost her mother from complications to COVID in Egypt also. So please keep them in your dua, and we pray that you know um, God will give them strength and patience and comfort and help their families get through it. And um, it's, this is, you know, especially when you lose someone through COVID um, and in Egypt, um, I think that's it's extra painful, so um, please pray for them. Um, and with that, I am really excited for um, Surah Al-Kalam and looking forward to a wonderful session, inshallah. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen. Wa salatu wa salam ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa ashabihi wa tawabi ihsanin ila yawm al-deen. ومشح لي صدري ويسر لي أمري وحلن عقدة من الثاني يرقاه قولي يا رب العالمين فإن شاء الله تنايت أرسورة السورة القلم سورة القلم The first revelation in the Quran was سورة العلق which is اقرأ بسم ربك الذي خلق خلق الإنسان من علق And most authorities, a clear, a clear majority, says that the second revelation directly after Surah Al-Alaq was Surah Al-Qalam. And Al-Alaq, which is Iqra' Bismi Rabbika, Ladi Khalaq, and Al-Qalam, Noon or Qalam or Mayasturun are the two surahs revealed before Al Muzammil and Al Muddathir, 
And after Al-Muzammal and Al-Mudathir, we have the Fatiha. So you have a bundle of sur, Al-Alaq, Al-Qalam, and then Al-Muzammal and Al-Mudathir, and then the Fatiha. And a bundle of sur that are the earliest revelation in the Quran And a wise person would pause. We covered in Muzammil and in Mudathir. And we saw the call that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala places for human beings through al Muzammil and al Mudathir. And the Fatiha. I've covered years ago in the regular tafsir before, long before Project Ulum. But a reflective person would think about the fact that Al-Alaq and Al-Qalam are the first two revelations of the Qur'an even before Al-Muzammil and Al-Muddathir. The Fatiha has a special status because the Fatiha is the heart and soul of the Qur'anic revelation and the divine speech. It is the seed from which everything is understood. It is as if the, the key to unlock all meaning. And and Muzammil and in Muddathir, it's like receiving your charged papers. I mean in, in many ways of Muzammil and in Muddathir it's like saying, okay, get going. It's time to move. And as we've talked about it is not limited to the Prophet but it is an eternal revelation and a continuing revelation for all human beings at all times that the beginning of the path is as outlined in Al-Muzammil and Al-Muddathir a path of energetic creation and a relentless mission uh, on behalf of God subhanahu wa ta'ala. But we go back and we say why Al-Alaq and why Al-Qalam? Al-Alaq of course we talked about years ago long before Project Ulun. Um, But the, the part that is worth remembering is that Al-Alaq begins with this command, broad command, to read. Iqra. And read means to reflect. 
And if you are going to read, there has to be writing to be read. If there is writing to be read, it begs the question of what is a text? And a text could be something between two covers like the Quran. A text could be something written on a single document. But a text could be any form of expression written on anything that can retain and reproduce that expression. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala can write divine wisdom, al-hikmah, on the face of creation So, if you observe and you learn to read the habits and practices of birds in the skies, you will understand that Allah writes through creation things that you can read and you can absorb. But Allah in Surah Al-Anaq says, Iqra, to read, and then reminds you of the pen. Then in Surah Al-Qalam, the second revelation, we again get the pen. And it would make perfect sense for a Muslim to say the first two the first two communications from the divine and the divine calls my attention to the pen. Of course, then you must ask, well, what is the pen? But this is very significant, as we will see, because it, 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 what did Allah choose to be the first thing that Allah calls our attention to? And this is core. And this is something that we cannot be oblivious to. Be before we, we jump into this journey, um, note that Surah Al-Qalam is, of course, we said <coughs> it's very early revelations, the second revelation. Um, in the tradition, you often get reports that say that 
the first part of Surah Al-Qalam was revealed was the second revelation in Mecca. But then there are parts of Surah Al-Qalam that was revealed much later. But when before the Prophet died, the Prophet instructed that this later revelation should be included in Surah Al-Qalam. Whether these reports are accurate or not is a complicated question. But in the case of Surah Al-Qalam, it doesn't really matter. What matters is that whether it was all revealed, all revealed very in the very early Meccan period, at the genesis of the revelation, or whether it w- some parts of Surah Al-Qalam was revealed later and then later joined to Surah Al-Qalam, what matters is the divine will. And the divine will is that we understand Surah Al-Qalam as the earliest divine speech. In other words, this is th- these are the commandments that God chooses to communicate to us first before anything else. And I'm harping on this point because this is all too often ignored in the way that we talk about the Quran and we think about Quranic revelation. Um, Whatever God flagged as a priority in the earliest revelation given to human beings must become a priority for us. It it is rather odd that something would be so critically important for the divine to choose as the theme of the earliest revelation and yet we would not take it as a priority. Uh, That would be deeply problematic. But unfortunately, uh, that's precisely what has happened in the Islamic tradition. Um, So what, what are the themes that Allah flags in the very beginning of the Islamic message as of central and critical importance. Surah Al-Alaq emphasizes the role of the intellect and emphasizes the role of learning. And to an illiterate society, it emphasizes the role of literacy. For a society 
that was predominantly non-reading, the Quran comes and says, reading is critical. The, and in Surah Al-Alaq, but yet it warns us that the journey for knowledge, it can be taken without God or with God. You can seek knowledge and put God aside as irrelevant to your journey of learning, or you could consider your journey of learning a path to God. And in Surah Al-Alaq, the whole, the whole momentum of Surah Al-Alaq is to tell you the journey to knowledge is critical, but it must be taken with God as central to this journey. So that's Surah Al-Alaq, the very first revelation. But then Surah Al-Qalam comes to add to this. So it begins noon وَالْقَلَمِ وَمَا يَسْطُرُونَ مَا أَنْتَ بِنِعْمَةِ رَبِّكَ بِمَجْنُونَ وَإِنَّ لَكَ لَأَجْرًا غَيْرَ مَمْنُونَ وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَى خُلُقٌ عَظِيمٌ Noon, the letter, noon in the Arabic alphabet. And by the pen and what is what they inscribe and you are not a majnoon, meaning you're not insane. We'll, we'll talk a little bit about this. Um So you have um, an unceasing reward, an uninterrupted reward, and you are of an exalted or perfected khuluq or character. And this is what we're going to be unpacking. So first, this letter, Noon, there is so much that you find in the tradition about that single letter. Um, some of it can be traced back to the Qusas, to the storytellers, so it's not very reliable. Some of it can be traced back to hadith attributed to the Prophet of various degrees of reliability or unreliability. Uh, and some that comes from biblical sources uh, rather than Islamic sources. So 
I'll just give you a sense of some of the big themes about Noon. Um, some said that Noon is the last letter in the word Ar-Rahman. So we have Alif La, in some surahs it starts with Alif Lam Ra, and then some surah starts with Hamim. And then this surah starts with Noon, and if you put all these letters together, they spelled out Ar-Rahman, the compassionate, which identifies the, the most quintessential um, characteristic of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Some said that Noon is one of the names of the Prophet in in the heavens, in the Mala al Ala. Um, some said that Noon is actually one of the secret names of Allah. Some relying on on a variety of sources, but anyway, they said that they go back to the old mythical belief that the earth is carried either on the back of a, a, a huge fish or on the old Greek belief that the earth is carried between the horns of a, a huge ox and they speculated that noon is referring to the fish that is carrying the the um, the whale that is carrying the earth, um, and, or the ox that is carrying the earth between its two horns. So you get these you know these remarkable f uh, uh, fantasies about what. Noon might be referring to, and a lot of these traditions goes back back to the story tellers. Um, in the Sufi-esque traditions, they said that Noon stands for what they called a nafs al-kulliya. Um, Uh, the best way to translate that is sort of um, the, the essential soul. While Al-Qalam stands for Al-Aql Kulli, or the essential intellect. And so Noon and Al-Qalam represent the soul and the intellect and the reason they, they say that is to go on to argue that balance can only be attained when the soul are and the intellect are in fact in harmony. But disharmony between the soul and the intellect results in a deep-seated illnesses and ill-humors and ill-tempers. And deep-seated pathologies. 
again in the Sufi tradition, and in, in a certain type of Sufi tradition, not all Sufi traditions, that the intellect is the prime instrument for the construction of reality. As uh, the, often the way they would put it is tantakish mawjudat that the intellect is constantly constructing for the nafs, for the self, the nature of reality. The intellect looks at a bunch of molecules and says, these molecules are a camera, these molecules are a table, these molecules are a person, these molecules are an animal. And the intellect is perceiving and constructing and interpreting for the self. But the self is the place where is the place of judgment for the intellect. So it is the self that can recognize whether what the intellect is constructing is value neutral or is indeed ugly or indeed beautiful. Whether it's the self that can say what is the in intellect is constructing is consistent with my mission for divine love or inconsistent with my mission for divine love. So while the intellect is constructing, put it, diff put it in a different way, it is the, the self that feels. And so it is the self that will consider what the intellect has constructed as completely dark or as full of light, full of hope, full of despair, and that if the self is disjointed entirely from the intellect, you have a problem. But if the intellect, on the other hand, is simply like a registrar of data, constructing things while the self is numb, doesn't recognize beauty, doesn't recognize ugliness, just recognizes the is, whatever the is is, then you have a problem as well. Because the intellect then is just saying, well, this is a table, and while it's not a big deal if you don't feel one way or the other about a table, but the intellect could, in fact, see a murder and say, this is a murder. And if you don't have a, a, a living self, the self could say, yeah, just a fact of life and move on, rather than actually feel something. So a lot, I mean, a lot that you find in the tradition about just the noon and the qalam. I don't know if noon 
in fact stands for the last letter of Rahman or whether Noon stands for An-Nafs or whether as some Sufi said the Noon stands for Noor, the light of the divine. Um, there is no way for us to know with absolute certainty that this is what Noon stands for because we do have traditions attributed to either the Prophet or one of the companions, but all these traditions are um, don't lead us on a matter of aqidah, on a matter of theology, to certitude. They, they make us... But there is a core that um, if you study all this tradition, If you study all this tradition and you look at um, the usages of the letter noon in the Arabic tradition, even before the Quran is revealed, or at the fact that someone like Yunus, السلام, the Prophet Yunus, was known as Zunnun, Zunnun uh, meaning the, the um, um, the man, I don't know how to do the man of the fish, um, but not literally, meaning that the, the, everything that the experience with the whale that Eunice had is sort of all encapsulated under the title, the noon. Um, anyway. We can't say with certitude what Noon refers to. But what if you study everything that has been said about a Noon and you pray on a Noon, that single letter, and what I think is that that letter, if you don't, don't you, you, you pray on it and reflect on everything that is written about it, it is as if, you know, uh, how do I put this? Um, if, um, if you are intensely doing dhikr and in your dhikr you are clearing your mind of everything and you visualize a noon you visualize that letter and there is nothing in your mind but that letter and you make a noon part of your dhikr. So in fact, you start your dhikr with La ilaha illallah, let's say. 
And then you move on to your zikr to Anun. You see a luminous light that is undeniable. And it is as if another layer or another dimension of reality. And I think that that simple letter is Allah saying to us, in connection to what Allah will be saying to us about the qalam, Allah saying to us, you, your world needs the qalam. Your world is founded upon the qalam. The intellect, the instrument of the intellect, the very art of writing, the very art of communicating meaning and transmission of meaning, but never forget that this is not the not entire entire existence. That your existence is full of mysteries, and these mysteries are with the divine. It, it resides where the luminosity of the divine is. And that is why Inun remains a mystery. But within this mystery, it's like, put it differently, don't you ever think that Al-Qalam and everything that surrounds Al-Qalam will give you access to the full truth. It will not. And then it would be very consistent with what Surah Al-Alaq says. Because Surah Al-Alaq had a very similar message. And then it would make perfect sense for Allah Subh'anaHu Wa Taala in the second direct revelation to invoke a letter that Arguably, even not just in the Arab tradition, but even in the Hebrew and Aramaic traditions, Anun was always a mysterious letter. And it was always a letter that connoted luminosity and mystery. So, to a lot of, to swear by it, and then swear by the khalam, it would be a perfect reminder for of our own limitations. As Allah is telling us to direct our attention to the intellect and its product. Is this point clear? Okay. Okay, so then, al-qalam, wa ma yasturun. The pen and what they write, and we already mentioned that for so many theologians, Sufi-esque and non-Sufi-esque, qalam could be the writing instrument, the pen, and the qalam is also the, int the same word is used for intellect. So it could be the pen as a tool and what they write, and it could be the intellect and what they write. And here we have some traditions 
not uh, necessarily very reliable that said that the fairy that say that the first thing that Allah created in the universe is the pen and that Allah after creating the pen told the pen to write and in these traditions the pen asks responds back and says what shall I write and then Allah tells the pen to write the Qadr, the fate, up to the hereafter. Now, I, you know, I don't deny that there, there, there must be things that are fated by the divine, but I that these traditions. Although, if you look at Tabari, for instance, you find he reports so many of them. Um, are traditions I don't put a lot of weight on. But the the qalam or the pen it could be arguably it could be a symbol for what Allah has fated. And that's sort of a traditional position. If you ask a lot of traditional mufassirun, they'll tell you the qalam is, and wa ma yasturun is, qadarullah, what Allah has uh, fated to happen, uh, including when people will be born, when people will die, when people, you know, so on and so forth. But uh, that's, that's not, um, that's not what I believe. Rather, Al-Qalam wa ma yasturun is the following. Remember again, I underscore that this is the second revelation. And after Allah has reminded us already of the Qalam and the responsibility of reading, now Allah is reminding us of the responsibility of the written word. And why is Allah reminding us of the responsibility of the written word? Remember that all the other prophets relied in their mission upon kharq al-adat, upon miraculous events. Moses splits the Red Sea, Jesus brings back to life dead things and among many other miracles, Saleh has the camel that comes out of a rock and a whole tradition of prophets and uh, dazzling people with the way that they are doing things that can only be done if they are aided by a divine being. But Muhammad's message, السلام, it's a new stage in human develop development and a new stage in human maturity. Human beings have matured at that point 
to the point where writing and speech and language has developed significantly and sciences have developed significantly and their ability to retain and create libraries have developed significantly and now the miracle is the written word and the written word is an enormous responsibility as we will see in Surat Al-Qalam itself when it talks to those who are not following Muhammad, those who do not b believe Muhammad, it will tell them, do you have a book that you are studying? As if it is the book, the text, that plays the critical role as the standard for producing evidence of what is right or what is wrong. The existence of a text is now the evidence for the possibility of truth. The absence of a text. So when the Quran says, rely on me rather than the Torah or the Injil, the Old Testament or the New Testament. Why? It says, I am more authentic. These are corrupted texts. As a text, I am more reliable. I am more coherent and cohesive and systematic and consistent than these other texts. And it draws the attention to, of human beings to a new phase in their existence. A phase in which it is learning, studying the processes of the intellect and what the intellect produces and manages to record as the way that al-hujjah, the evidence, is presented and rebutted and asserted. So, al-qalam wa ma yasturun by that miraculous thing that Allah has created, the ability to write. And indeed, we've talked, for instance, in Surah Al-Qasas um, um, about narrative. But look at the consistency in themes. Because here, in Surah Al-Qalam, like Surah Al-Alaq, the very early revelation, in a largely illiterate society to an illiterate man, Allah comes and says, 
the pen and the responsibility of using the pen to write and the miracle of the creation of beings that in fact can write and can retain knowledge through writing and can communicate knowledge, I don't think it's um, a coincidence that by the time the Quran, Allah sends the Quran, human beings have developed the skill to the, 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 the know-how of producing paper which is going to be critical to the process of communicating knowledge and preserving knowledge. Because until paper is invented, the, pro the process of producing and preserving knowledge is very precarious at best. It wasn't long after the death of the Prophet when Muslims relied on paper. I mean, it wasn't even decades. I don't think that is a coincidence. Nothing in human history is a coincidence. And it is remarkable that it starts out, and you can imagine the reaction of Arabs when here's this man who's saying, I am a prophet, and he himself doesn't read or write. And he comes and, he, and he's communicating to them what he's received as revelation, and two consecutive surahs. What is he emphasizing? Reading and writing. It, how would you have reacted? It is, for me, it, it is clear proof that this is not coming from him. This is coming from well beyond him. Because if he was speaking his consciousness, it wouldn't make any sense. And he knows that when his first two revelations is about pen and writing and reading, what are Arabs going to say? They're going to say, you're insane, you're crazy. And this is exactly what happened. So, وَمَا أَنْتَ بِنِعْمَةِ رَبِّكَ بِمَجْنُونَ And Allah swears that, no, you're not crazy. Because that's exactly what the response, what are you talking about? You talk to us about reading and writing and pens and, and, and intellects. This is so foreign to everything our poetry has been about, so foreign to everything our culture has been about. Where are you coming from? It's like coming from outer space, like an alien from outer space. And so, of course, the first reaction is, you must be insane, you must be crazy. And does it matter that Allah is swearing to them that he's not crazy? I don't think it matters. 
but it is underscoring the point itself that no, this is not about an insane man. This is about something much larger than you. This is about Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, the divine speaking. And the, thus, the expression that you're receiving doesn't reflect the psychology of Muhammad. It reflects the truth of Allah. This is, by the way, significant because some modern Muslims have tried to argue um, that, yeah, the, the, the Qur'an is divine, but it's sort of divine inspiration, but it really reflected the psychology of the Prophet. So in other words, it's like receiving messages from the divine, but in very broad lines. But the language and the themes and the ideas are all temporal. They're all Muhammad's. <coughs> and I, I think this idea is very dangerous. Um, although, unfortunately, in some circles it had become, become very widespread. But um, it... it it secularizes the Qur'an to the point of no return. There, there is no point to the Qur'an uh, if it's simply just another work of literature, basically. Yes, it, it has some divine inspiration, but in the same way that Ibn Arabi was divinely inspired, or in the same way Jilani was divinely inspired, or in the same way that Al-Hallaj was divinely inspired. You know, they, they all had the divine in them, but none of their texts are divine. And that line of thinking or line of argument um, troubles me. Okay. Okay. Yeah, they, the study Quran translated it as a reward unceasing. Just, yeah, un, uninterrupted reward or um, وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَىٰ خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ Now, although the study Qur'an translates it as you, you are of an exalted character, عَلَىٰ خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ It's like saying, Allah saying, your ethics, you have a great ethical being, or you are of great ethical character. 
And very early on in the revelation, that begs the question of why. Why would Allah underscore that and for what purpose? We know that by that time, Muhammad, by the time Surah Al-Qalam comes down, Muhammad has been now a prophet for a very short time. And he is in a very vulnerable position. So if, you know, if, if for the Quran to come and say, his detractors could impeach, could respond to this rather confident statement, right? Because they're not believers. And say, yeah, well, you think that you are, you have a great ethical character? Well, you know, you're just insane, you're crazy, you're ill, you're, and this is exactly what they do. So if you think about it, it is, I am sure that that while the Prophet ﷺ was flattered that Allah is praising him like that, but at the same time, Allah is inviting a huge headache upon the Prophet. Because the enemies of the Prophet, it's like inviting them to have a feeding frenzy. You know, it's like if you are uh, in among competitors as a professional and you, you go and you say, you know, I am a very ethical lawyer. Well, your competitors are not going to say amen. They're, they're all going to jump on you to, to attack you. So why Allah is not talking clearly while it's flattering to the Prophet, but there is a purpose beyond just flattery to the Prophet. And it begs the question of, well, what is meant by khuluq azim? What is meant by um, great ethical character? Especially that we don't have any Islamic law. So this is a statement that precedes Islamic law and precedes revelation. So ethics, it would seem to mean that their ethics is founded upon a wrong and right that is prior to revelation. So when they thought about good ethical characters, so for instance, the things that the commentators would always mention are things like forgiveness, helm, uh, patience and forbearance, jude, uh, generosity, a sabr, patience, rahmah, mercy, kindness, right? 
Okay, so all these statements, it would mean that they have a meaning. Mercy has means something that is ethical prior to any divine revelation. Why does that make a difference? Because if ethics exists by virtue of creation prior to any revelation, then they define moral responsibility even in the absence of revelation. So long before the prophet became a prophet and long before the prophet had any revelation, God looked upon the prophet and said, you have afu, you are forgiving. You have hilm, you have forbearance. You have jude, you are generous. You have sabr, you are patient. You have rahma, you are merciful. Um, you have lean janib, you're kind to, to family and friends. Um, and Allah recognized all of these qualities as good ethical qualities before revelation and before a text. So where did they come from? Was it the qalam, meaning here, not the, not the pen, but the intellect that taught the prophet these moral qualities? Was it the nafs? Was it the balance between the nafs and the intellect? So was it that the prophet was seeing the world through the intellect and then the nafs was saying the way I'm going to negotiate this world that the intellect is telling me about is in a way that gives expression to these ethical qualities. And the answer is yes, but then the prophet becomes a moral example not simply through the revelation, but not only through the revelation, but a moral example as to how he negotiated the realities of life to give expression to these ethical qualities. But there's something that is a subtlety that is, is, is very important. We know that al-af, forgiveness, is a moral quality. We know that hilm, forbearance, is a moral quality. We know that ajud, generosity, is a moral quality. We know that sabr, patience, is a moral quality. We know that rahma, mercy, is a moral quality. Okay? But, how do we define patience or forbearance or mercy or generosity? Are they defined abstractly 
once and for all, for all times and ages to come? Or are they defined contextually? With each period and place having its own language that defines these moral qualities. So, could it be that what would count as merciful in one place and in one time would count as cruel in a, in a different time and place? Could it be what counts as generous in one time? Let me just give you a very obvious example. Once upon a time, if you offered someone some goat milk, you were being very generous. If I see someone in the United States in great need and I offer them a glass of milk, am I being greatly generous? I think most people say no. Things have changed. They're very different. Now, this gave rise to a debate or a discussion, if you will, not, a, not necessarily a debate. They said, Al-Khuluq Al-Tab'a Al-Mutakallif. Al-Mutakallif. While Al-Khiyam, Al-Khiyamu, Al-Tab'a Al-Gharizi. They said that Khuluq is ethical character that depends on on ada on on habit and practice while what is known as al khiyam is al tab'a al gharizi instinctive moral character that is not dependent on so what is what is an example of of, of khiyam I can't argue that if I beat someone to a bloody pulp, that that's merciful in some places or not merciful in other places. One can make a very good argument that bleeding some, beating someone to a bloody pulp is not merciful in all times and all places. A clearer example, obviously, would be murder, if I kill someone. But there is very good evidence that all forms of beatings are not good, generous moral character. When someone serves the Prophet and says, I served him for 20 years and he never told me, he never reprimanded me for anything I've done. It's evidence that anger 
is not sometimes okay or other times not okay, that it's always not good moral character, but not conclusive evidence because it could be the forms of anger, how you express anger, could in fact differ from one society to another. In some societies, being angry is yelling and screaming. In other societies, being angry could be throwing a stone behind someone as they leave. Or in another society, expressing anger could be taking a bucket of water and spilling it, and that's cursing them forever. These are all expressions of anger. The moral essential is, is that we don't want the type of anger that expresses unkindness and, and lack of mercy, etc., etc. But the forms of the anger differ greatly from one place to another. So, while akhlaq that akhlaq depends at least in their um, as applied applied ethics do differ from one place to another. So when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala comes and says, وَإِنَّكَ لَعَلَى خُلُقٍ عَظِيمٍ Our ancestors, because they took suar far more seriously than we did, they said, Allah is challenging us to use that great moral responsibility of the qalam wa ma yasturun intellect and what you actually do with the intellect what you produce with the intellect to think about the nature of ethics and whether when we study the example of the prophet what are we learning from the example of the Prophet? At the time of the Prophet, if you gave someone two dates, that could be an act of great generosity. But it's not very long before in the Islamic civilization, giving someone two dates meant very little. For a thinking people, that's what creates civilization. It wouldn't surprise you to know that these two surahs, Al-Alaq and Al-Qalam, were among the main sources of inspiration for what became the Mu'tazili movement in Islam, the rationalist movement in Islam. There, you know, with all the excesses that the Mu'tazila committed in many different things, I mean, because they started reading so much Greek philosophy, they became very influenced by it. And sometimes that made them go. But as 
there's no question that the Mu'tazili tradition influenced the whole tradition of Usul al-Fiqh. And that even I doubt that the entire field of Usul al-Fiqh would have emerged in Islam if it hadn't been for Surah Al-Alaq and Surah Al-Qalam. Because Usul al-Fiqh is actually a very rationalist field of study. It is about applied reason. And people who don't understand Usul al-Fiqh, they think that Usul al-Fiqh can be given effect. You can effectuate Usul al-Fiqh without understanding applied morality. Well, in reality, if you truly understand Usul al-Fiqh, you understand that Usul al-Fiqh is about applied morality. Sadly, it, it, it takes a great deal of learning to fully, because as civilization grows, human beings become more and more and more cowardly about um, saying things that they are afraid is going to break ranks with the accumulated tradition. But what gives people a great deal of confidence to understand things and is a great amount of learning. That's when you actually have the confidence to innovate and be creative. Is that the more you learn and the more you master, the more you say, well, you know, no, I, I, I can use this learning. Okay. Some important points about uh, Remember that um, Aisha was often asked, there are several traditions, all that have the same nature. Uh, when she was asked about the Prophet's moral character, and her very famous reply was, his moral character was the Qur'an. And in many of the traditions, she actually says, well, haven't you read the Qur'an? And then they say, yes. Say, well, his moral character was the Qur'an. Um, but, uh, which, I mean, yeah, there, there are many versions of this tradition. It was transmitted by so many people that I think is probably a mutawatir. Um, uh, but I, there are... Um, there are so many, when the Prophet ﷺ comments about Surah Al-Qalam, he tells us, مَا مِنْ شَيْءٍ There is nothing that is weighed, that is weighed more heavily or that is more weighty in Allah's scales than husnul khuluq, than good moral character, good ethics. But again, I underscore, you cannot have good moral character unless you understand what 
mercy is not at the time of the Prophet but in your time and in your place. You cannot have Husnul Khuluq unless you understand what dignity is, not at the time of the Prophet but at your time and in your place. You cannot have patience unless you understand what patience is not at the time of the Prophet, but again, at your time and your place. All the ethical concepts, they have to be understood with the, the, the entire complexity in your historical moment, within your, your epistemological consciousness. Otherwise, it's a corruption. Otherwise, you're, you're cheating. You're cheating. This is exactly what a lot of Islamic movements, why they alienate people, is that they start putting on a veneer of, oh, we, we have Husnul Khuluq. But it strikes people as artificial and archaic. To them, it's not Husnul Khuluq. It, it, it maybe it's weird. That's because they don't understand the difference between al khiyam and Al-Khuluq. al khiyam as I said, are intrinsic, unchanging. Al-Khuluq, as applied, they're always contextual and they're always changing. Um, there is another hadith, again, the Prophet says, إِنَّ صَاحِبْ حُسْنُ الْخُلُقِ لَا يَبْلُغْ دَرَجَةُ الصَّائِمِ الْقَائِمِ That a person who has good ethical character in Allah's eyes is as weighty as someone who is constantly fasting and constantly worshipping throughout the night. So, I mean, think about this. When the Prophet says, in the hereafter, nothing is as weighty as good moral character. So when our ancestors spent a lot of time trying to understand what is good moral character, that's why. You can't just cheat and say, well, I'll just, you know, do what a bunch of hadiths that I read tell me. Because then, you know, you're not doing a qalam wa ma You're cheating. You're not using your intellect. You're not discharging your responsibility towards how the intellect retains knowledge and reproduces knowledge. You're cheating. You want to be like a... A, a, a monkey memorizing or a parrot memorizing words and reproducing them. You can't do it that way. It can't be done. Um, yeah, oh, I forgot to say this. 
That among the things that have always struck me, you know, uh, for instance, when um, someone, one of the companions, I don't remember which one, um, who's asked about Khuluqun Nabi, the, the, the character of the Prophet, and then he says something that I think is really interesting. He says, Well, he, no one, any member of his family or his friends or his companions who called upon him, the Prophet's response would always be Labaik. Like, Labaik is like saying, by our language today, yes, sir, I'm here for you. Now, think about that. Because it gives you a sense for what, what his true character was, right? A man, every time a family member, he, he, he has a large household. He has all these companions. He has all these followers. He has all these hypocrites, right? The hypocrites of Medina. And he has all the kuffar. And he always responds, yes, sir, I'm here for you. How many of you who have always been in a good mood that every time someone called upon you, you smiled and said, yes, sir, I'm here for you. It's a real challenge. Because most of us are moody. But that moodiness, if we follow the example of the Prophet, is not good moral character. Being in a good mood and saying, yes, you know, I'll help right away. And then in a different, you're in a different mood, you know, basically leave me alone. You know, even if you don't say leave me alone, but effectively that's what you're saying. Or, yeah, what do you want? Or what is it? Bad moral character. That is the sunnah of the Prophet, far more than all the ostentatious stuff that we practice. Like, that is core and heart of the sunnah of the Prophet, far more than whether the curtain separating men and women. Which, by the way, we have no evidence that it, it was any of the mosques of the, of the Prophet is, you know, up there or not. But how many times have you heard Muslims talk about in, 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 in an analytical way what good ethics mean that we learn from what the Prophet was? I mean, to actually teach our children that saying, yeah, what do you want? Or what is it? Was actually un-Islamic. Because it is un-Islamic. But we ourselves forget that because we, 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 we're not serious about engaging our Islamic ethics. There's another hadith where the Prophet, I mean, there's so many. I, I mean, I keep remembering, you know, as I'm 
Another uh, hadith from the Prophet والسلام, that says, um, The best thing that Allah would give a human being is good moral character. If you're a literalist, think about it. The best thing Um, okay. I, I actually wrote uh, uh, when the Prophet Ali uh, sorry, when the Aisha is asked about again this area, Husnul Khuluq. And she responds, لم يكن فاحشا ولا متفاحشا ولا صخابا في الأسواق ولا يجد السيئة بالسيئة ولكن يعفو ويصفح. The Prophet was not obscene. Did not speak obscenely, did not say obscene things, and was not rude. And he was not loud. He wouldn't raise his voice in the marketplace. Sakhaba fil aswaq meaning a loud personality. Uh, and did not respond to unkindness with unkindness. But always forgave. When people were unkind to him, he would let, let go and forgive. Um, in the context of again Husnul the this that's the, this area um there is the Prophet is is asked about about Husnul Khuluq and one of his responses I mean, and there's so much, but I'm, I've just, the, the things that I think are the most important. He said, um, um, A qannan is um, in a mem, a, someone who's constantly speaking ill about people. And this is something that we need to think about and worry about because the Prophet said someone who is constantly speaking about ill about other people will not enter heaven. Um, considering how widespread that practice is, it is far more important than whether you grow a beard or not. Uh, because this could be what actually be your doom in the hereafter. You've spoken ill about so many, so many people. And uh, 
so it's it's something that to think about and to take seriously. Of course, the, the very famous hadith um, that is, I think, another hadith that reaches uh, the, probably reaches the point of mutawatir. But the Prophet says, that, that the the reason the Prophet's prophecy is to perfect ethical moral character. Of course, again, the 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 problem in the way that a lot of people understand this hadith is that they they think that they can derive what ethical character is from the a historical text meaning the text disembodied from its historical context and then it's a matter of then applying whatever they, they, they imagine to be an ethical character um, in, in, a, in a, as if a straitjacket. But as, as I said, ethical values are constant, like truthfulness, mercy, generosity. But what they mean is contextual and contingent on the world of meaning created by human beings in their interactions. Because as we said, the aql constructs reality and the, the nafs receives that reality. And we are constantly constructing realities in um, often creative and turbulent ways and it it is not um, it, it, is, it is it is a process that requires a great deal of understanding and a great deal of comprehension for in fact for Islam to become a mercy unto mankind or unto humankind Okay, let's, um, okay. فَسَتُبْصِرُ وَيُبْصِرُونَ بَأَيُّكُمْ الْمَفْتُونَ إِنَّ رَبَّكَ هُوَ أَعْلَمُ بِمَنْ ضَلَّ عَنْ سَبِيلِهِ وَهُوَ أَعْلَمُ بِالْمُهْتَدِينَ فَلَا تُطْعِ الْمُكَذِّبِينَ وَدُّوا لَوْ تُدْهِنُوا فَيُدْهِنُونَ This is up to you. Verse 9, um, up to verse 9, so do not obey the deniers, uh, 
there, I'm, I'm not going to say much about this, other that no, that it goes back to that theme of perception and reality. That you, it, relating back to the notion, whole notion of the intellect constructing reality, that there will come a time where it's not going to be a matter of interpretation. And you are going to see the truth for what the truth is. And they will see the truth. And at that time, there will be no denying what the truth is. Note again, this is six. How did, which of you is afflicted? Maftun is, they, they are arguing, those who do not believe the Prophet, you are deluded. Either you're insane or you are imagining things. You are deluded. Subjectivity of the creation and perception and creation of reality. And Allah is responding on behalf of the Prophet and say, well, they'll see who's deluded. Note, now, at the very beginning of the message, and we know the beginning of the message, is it public or secret? Secret, right? We're going to go through the phase of Dar al-Arqam where the message is secret. So, why is Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala coming to the Prophet at a time when there's no public message and talking about compromises? Be cautious that they will try to compromise with you. All moral messages, and this is, this is something that's been written about a great deal, but all moral messages, all true paradigm, ethical paradigm shifts, have a challenge that at one point or another there comes this 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 critical juncture where of well for the sake of pragmatism and practicality let's work out a deal if a moral message compromises itself as we will see what Surat al-Qalam requires from us will not come to be. And, and it will, we'll see in a second what it requires from us. But it is from the very beginning telling the Prophet listen, Allah knows this is going to be really hard. And Allah knows that there are going to be a lot of points where you are called upon to fudge things a bit, to cut corners, to 
you know, you don't have to be so unreasonable. You don't have to be so hard-headed. You don't have to be so stubborn. You know, let's just, you know, come to some workable agreement. And, but that's precisely the death knell of every moral mission that humanity has ever seen. So then, وَلَا تُطْعَ كُلَّ حَلَّافٍ مَهِينٍ هَمَّازٍ مَشَّاءٍ بِنَمِيمٍ مَنَّاعٍ لِلْخَيْرِ مُعْتَدٍ أَثِيمٍ عُطُلٍ بَعْدَ ذَلِكَ زَنِيمٍ أَنْ كَانَ ذَا مَالٍ وَبَنِينٍ إِسْتُطْلَ عَلَيْهِ آيَاتُنَا قَالَ أَصَاطِيرُ الْأَوَّلِينَ سَنَسِمُهُ عَلَى الْخُرْطُومِ This is all the way to verse 16. Um, do not obey any vile oath monger, okay, slandering, spreading calumny, uh, hindering good trans and a transgressing sinner, churlish, surely, and ignoble, uh, simply because he possesses wealth and children, who constantly says these are the fables of the old. We, and then Sanasimu al Khultun we shall brand him on the snout. Who's it talking about? It's obviously talking about a very obnoxious rude person. A person who is vulgar, who is in Binamim means he's constantly talking about people, constantly Hamaz um, speaking ill and conspiring against people, speaking ill of people, and conspiring against people. Someone who doesn't want to see good extended to others. Um, what's fascinating here is that it's been the tradition doesn't tell us clearly who the Quran is talking about. And what's fascinating is that we have reports that it's talking about Walid and Walid bin Mughira. We have reports that it's talking about uh, Abu Jahl, the famous Abu Jahl. We have reports that it's talking about Al Akhnas uh, bin Surayyuk um, and even others. And it would fit any of these characters because Al-Walid bin Mughira was very rich, had a lot of children, was a rather burly character. He was large and he was rude, loud, um, not very generous and not kind. Um, he was constantly backbiting. Abu Jahl fits the same. Maybe Abu Jahl is even more cruel than Al-Walid ibn Mughira. Al-Akhnas, again, it would fit. But the interesting thing is that All of these are fitted to the Quranic 
description after the fact. In other words, commentators looked at these verses and said, well, they would seem to describe Al-Walid bin Mughira or Abu Jahl rather well. So it must have been talking about them. But what if it's not talking about any of them in particular? What if it's talking about a prototype? What if it's talking about a, a, a personality type? A personality type that is loud, that is confident, that is constantly thinks ill of others, constantly talking about ill of others, constantly conspiring about against those who have a moral ethical mission. Its problem is, is its arrogance. It's wealthy, it doesn't understand need, and so it has no sympathy for need And therefore, when a moral message reaches them like this, their immediate response, because it, it challenges them to change their moral character, their response is, well, it must be just pure fabrication. It must be just fantasy. It can't be true. Anything that requires me to give up my entitled lifestyle, my obnoxious lifestyle, cannot be true. Now, interestingly, a lot of this goes back to Sanasimu al-Khurtum. We will brand them on the nose, if you want a literal transla translation. And here, two possibilities. When it says we will brand them on the nose, is it saying, is it predicting something that's going to happen in the future? Is it saying that one of these bad people in the battle, especially the battle of Badr, is going to be struck on the nose and they're going to have an injury across the nose. So, and so it will become like it's saying, you know, Allah knows what the future is and one of them is going to be injured across the nose. Some commentators said, yes, that's exactly what it's saying. And, but here's the thing, they weren't sure who was it that got marked on the nose in the Battle of Badr? And we have competing reports about which of the disbelievers got marked on the nose on the Battle of Badr. But there's a different possibility altogether. In Arabic at the, at the time and even Arabic to, to today when you when, when you wanted to when you want to say someone 
is confident or proud. You say shamikhul anf, meaning someone who whose nose is up high. But, you know, it, it, the nose is considered the it, 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 creatively it is sign of of pride. Um, if you want to say. I forced someone to do something despite themselves. You say, Rahma and Fihi. It's like I forced their nose. It doesn't mean that you actually forced their nose. It means you forced them. If you wanted to say someone who is, I've been insulted, you say, that, that their nose has been broken. It's not that you're saying that you actually broke their nose, but you're saying that their pride has been broken. So, if you take that literary context, when Allah says, سَنِسِمُوا الْخُرْتُونَ Then it is as if Allah is saying, that for those obnoxious, arrogant types in the hereafter, their nose will be humbled. It's like saying, we'll get them by the nose. Uh, let's see how the study Quran translated it. I'm just curious. Um, yeah, the Qustadi Quran just says, we shall brand, brand him on the snout, which is... Okay. Then after that, Surah Al-Qalam moves to tell us a parable. And it's a very interesting parable, right? And a very simple parable at the same time. A parable about a people who had a garden, meaning crops, harvest, and they decided to become stingy with their crops and the results of that decision. We know from Quranic commentators that they often say that this was, there was a man in Yemen in a town outside of Sana'a that owned a garden with good harvest and that man was generous and he was generous because he made it a point to invite people who are needy to his farm to pick up any fruit that had fallen off the trees to the ground. So that's one. Two, that he would take whatever his family needs and give and donate the excess to anyone who's needy. When the man there dies, the, he has three, three children and the three children are married and they have children and the children get together and they say 
you know, my our father was very generous, but now this farm that our father used to harvest has to support his children and his grandchildren. Our father could afford to be generous. We can't afford to be generous. So they put their heads together and they say, well, A, let's build a very strict fence around our property to keep out the poor people. B, let's end that practice of inviting the needy on the day of harvest to come pick up whatever has fallen to the ground. And C, let's end the expectation that we are going to donate a percentage of the harvest to the needy. So we're canceling all the policies of our father that were geared to share with the community. And they, in fact, build the fence and they uh, create sacks for the harvest. This is, um, I learned this about farming dates, that if you want to make sure that a percentage of the dates on palm trees don't fall to the ground, and if they fall to the ground, of course, passerbys will pick them up. You, you, you create a sack around the, the, the dates. So when you harvest the dates, you harvest all of them. Um, so they created these sacks and created the fence and made it well known that, forget it, don't expect anything on harvest day or after harvest day. We're not giving you anything. And uh, Allah responds by destroying. If fire breaks out in their farm, it burns their entire crop. And they come together and they look upon what happened and they start blaming each other. And then Awsatuhum means the most rational among them. There are some reports that it was the middle child, but other reports say Al-Satwa means the most rational among them. Says, you know, this is a punishment from God. Um, and they think about it and then they regret and they repent. Okay, it's a parable. Okay, whether it happened historically or not, it's not the point. It's not the point. But think about the particulars. Here is, again, the second revelation. Right after Al-Alaq. And Allah chooses, after telling us about the intellect, after telling us about writing, after telling us about good moral character, what does Allah choose to tell us about the way that we use the intellect to make excuses to monopolize wealth for ourselves? Building a fence, how many of us would think twice about building a fence around our property to secure it from having to share it with anyone. How many of us would think twice about more efficient way 
of capitalizing on our crops. How many of us would think that we are not obligated to share a percentage, and it's not a farm. Think of your salary. How much of your salary do you think is yours? How much of your salary do you think you're entitled to? Do you look at your salary and say, hmm, well, if I really am serious towards myself, only 70% is enough for me, and the rest belongs to others. Do you really do that? How is that different from this? It's not. Now, again, what I'm underscoring here is that this is the prophet introducing himself to Mecca. And what is he telling them? The intellect, the pen, good moral character, and share your wealth. No wonder that they got pissed off at him and said, what the hell do you, who the hell do you think you are? But, Remember, don't compromise. Because that's precisely where the compromise would come. Well, you know, how about if we just, you know, on the day of harvest, have a big feast and invite all the poor in the town to eat to their heart's content. Well, you know, what if We'll just give this a care, you know, two and a half percent every year, whatever we don't use. We'll that give that. This is a very demanding standard in the second revelation of the Quran. It tells you what Allah's priorities for that religion is. Now, note, this will take us So, just so you see what I'm talking about very clearly. So, like, if you look at verse 24. So, early to your tillage, if you would harvest, so they set forth while whispering to one another, no indigent shall come to you therein today. That don't allow a poor person to come unto the land. We're canceling our father's policies. And our policies are going to be more efficient for us. And the hell with the poor people. And obviously, you know, it's not that God is telling us, you know, every time you're going to do this, I'm going to burn down your company, or I'm going to burn down your factory, or I'm going to burn down your business, or I'm going to get you fired if you don't give to the poor. Allah is saying a parable. Reflect upon the parable to understand the priorities of the divine. And this will take us to verse 32. So mark the place. That will take us to verse 32. Or actually 33. Uh, shall we stop for Maghrib?
Okay, we're, we're going to pray Maghrib. Bismillah ar-Rahman ar-Rahim. In the parable of the garden, um, no, in, this is in verse 25 when Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, وَغَدُوا عَلَى حَرْدٍ قَادِرِينَ um, I mean, there's so many of, of these remarkable expressions in the Quran, but when um, hard here could have several meanings, but in the context, If you say haratu hardaka, means I qasatu qasdaka, means I I I am following following your purpose, or I am following in your footsteps. If you say haradat al ibl, means that the cattle is not as productive, or there is something that is obstructing. You're heard. Anyway, so in this context, it means that they had an intention, but the intention was to um, isolate their property from society. In other words, intention was not to share. But it's so wonderfully expressed in just a few words. That they 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 were determined to limit the bounties of their property to themselves. Um you know if you if you have property and you say, you know, I'm going to keep all trespassers off and you start taking steps to preclude all trespassers, you, you, that, you would be that you are now, you're, you're, you're taking these able, determined steps to exclude others. Um, okay. Now, note right after you are told about the parable of the garden, um, verse 35 and 36 comes and says, أَفَنَجْعَلُ الْمُسْلِمِينَ كَالْمُجْرِمِينَ مَا لَكُمْ لَا مَا لَكُمْ كَيْفَ تَحْكُمُونَ Are we going to, do, do you think that as far as Allah is concerned, Allah will treat those who submit, those who are designated as Muslim, like 
the offenders, like al-mujrimin could be offender, could be criminal, but it's, it's someone who's in the wrong. And then the rhetorical question, how, how could you think so? And again, note that this, this rhetorical question comes right after it shared with us a parable about social stinginess, refusal to share, and um, monopolization of wealth. Then the next thing of note is this Quranic expression, يَوْمَ يُكْشَفُ عَنْ سَاقٍ وَيُدْعَوْنَ إِلَى السُّجُودِ فَلَا يَسْتَطِعُونَ The study Quran says on the day when the shank is laid bare and they are called to prostrate yet are not able. The reason that this is, is uh, of note is Yawma Yukshafu al was the subject of a lot of writing in the Islamic tradition. Um, Yukshaf al literally means the day that leg, the legs are exposed. Idiomatically, it means a day of hardship. A kashfan al-saq is idiomatically used to, to connote a day of hardship. Um, the reason that this became a subject of a lot of writing in the Islamic tradition is what some commentators refer to as uh, the people of Bil-Balkafa. Bil people of Belkafa is it connotes the people of Bilakaif, the people of without how. And the people of uh, without how or the people of Bil Belkafa, Belkafa, um, said that the leg that's going to be exposed in the hereafter is God's leg. And then they said, well, don't ask, how is God going to expose God's leg? Bila kaif. Don't ask how. And um, and many commentators said that al-mustatirina bil balkafa, those who use the Bila Kaif, the doctrine of don't ask how, as an excuse for amorphism. So they're amorphists, but they don't want to admit they're amorphous. So they just say, well, God is going to expose God's leg and don't ask how. And the, so there's a lot of writing about um, whether Yukshaf Ansaq refers to God or, but to make this long debate get to the point, 
it doesn't it, uh, there's it's ridiculous to say that it, it has it, it's it's uh, referring to god yuksha is is the idiomatic expression that it is going to be a day of serious hardship and on the day of serious hardship those at some point in the hereafter as those who are fortunate enough to gaze upon the beauty of the divine their response will be sujood while those who are not in God's favor will not be able to prostrate whether they want to or not they are not going to be able to prostrate and then note that then the the Quran expression um, um, that they used to be they were asked to prostrate when they could do so meaning in their in their earthly life and they failed to prostrate this um, this Quranic expression is often also um, referenced in the context of those who miss prayer that on earth you make a choice not to pray or to miss prayer and so but in the hereafter making up these prayers uh, is not going to be an easy matter so even if you want to make up the prayers you missed it's not going to be so easy okay then فذرني وما يكذب هذا الحديث نستدرجه من حيث لا يعلمون 44 so leave me with those who deny this discourse and I give them an opportunity on this earth only alone that I, I give them ample chances but ultimately, there is a consequence to all of this. Okay. So then we get to the reference of the companion of the fish, where Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells the Prophet, don't be like the companion of the fish. Who's the companion of the fish? Is the Prophet Yunus. And that reference, there are two basic narratives about the Prophet Yunus. Both agree that the Prophet Yunus despaired. But one says that he lived among his people, he preached among his people, and when he finally despairs that his people will ever answer him he prays that Allah destroys his people as punishment and he receives, receives indication that by sunrise they will in fact be despaired 
destroyed. And at that point, fed up and angry, he leaves his city or his town and he heads to the Red Sea where he's going to take a ship um, to cross into the African shore. And meanwhile, he left one of two followers behind. But the Prophet Yunus doesn't know that that follower that he left behind preached and begged his people that morning and that lo and behold his people actually responded to the call of that follower and so God didn't destroy them so the prophet Yunus despaired after I mean, at the very last moment, he said, okay, they're going to be destroyed. I'm going to stop trying. It just, uh, you know, was just waiting till the morning for them to be destroyed. But his follower, in fact, tried again and it worked. So that's one narrative. And for that, Allah punishes Eunice by being swallowed by a whale and the prophet Eunice but makes, uh, utters his famous prayer, La ilaha illa anta subhanak inni kuntu muna zalimeen. La ilaha illa anta subhanak. I was unjust. And Allah responds to that prayer by the whale um, vomiting him out and he ends up on, on an island where he recuperates his health. Another narrative is that the Prophet Yunus didn't despair the day before his people were supposed to be destroyed. He despaired before that. That he preached among his people and then finally he said there's no use, none of them are responding. He loses his temper and he goes off in the wilderness yelling there's no point, there's no use, they're foul. And for despairing, God again, same thing, God punishes him. But the difference between the two narratives is whether he despairs the very last minute or he despairs long before the last minute. In either case, it is of great significance that this early on, what does Allah tell the Prophet ﷺ? You have a mission and despairing is not permitted. It is up to Allah to scheme. It is not up to you to scheme. That's not you. what you're doing. You, what you're doing is preaching not scheming. It is God that will hold people accountable in the hereafter. That's not what you're doing. You are inviting and teaching and preaching.
Then وَإِنْ يَكَادُ الَّذِينَ كَفَرُوا لِيُزْلِقُونَكَ بِأَبْصَارِهِمْ لَمَّا سَمِعُوا الذِّكْرِ وَيَقُولُونَ إِنَّهُ لَمَجْنُونَ Those who believe The study Quran says Will nigh smite thee down with their glances What this is talking about And what, what this verse There's always a discussion in the sources after this verse about the evil eye when they were looking at they they were giving very hateful glances at the prophet they were angry when they heard that he is saying that he's a prophet and they they're staring at him and these stares were they of the type that could have actually hurt the prophet or is simply God saying that, you know, just don't pay attention to how hatefully they look at you. And make a long discussion short, because this is not the, the you know, I don't think it's important for us, is that the, um, yeah, looks, evil eyes can cause a lot of damage they can hurt um, and they can hurt in, 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 in many different ways but I think when the Quran is talking here about it's, it's not talking about the type of evil eye that could cause damage it's just talking that it's telling the Prophet Allah knows that they're giving you very evil and bad looks but you can't worry about that. Because it says, and they're saying that you're insane. It's not that they're envying you. It's not that they are in, you know, trying to send demons after you. They hate you and they think you're insane. But, this is a remembrance to all humankind. And what is the importance of all humankind? Remember I told you that, again, some Orientalists and some apologists, or some Orientalists and some Muslims who are for all practical purposes Orientalists themselves, said that the Prophet, at the beginning of his message, considered his message to be only for people of Mecca. And then later on, his ambitions grew, and his ma he made his message universal. For, you know, just take note that the second surah in the Quran, very early on, it's a universal message. So the whole thesis, I mean, and again, I say that because when I see so many young people, every week I get messages from young people, oh, I'm having a, a crisis of faith. And then when they start pointing, they start listing all the things that are giving them a crisis of faith, immediately I can tell what they've been reading. And immediately I can tell that they've been reading Islamophobic sources on the net. And You know, it's it's like stepping in the ring to fight a professional boxer. 
If you're not a professional boxer, you can't step in the ring to fight a professional boxer. You're going to get pummeled. Islamophobes spend a lot of time studying the tradition to misrepresent it and to, def to present it in the worst light possible. You as a Muslim, unless you are a learned person, don't expose yourself to things that you're not going to be able to answer. Because sending me a message with 20 questions, I don't have the time to respond. You know, I can't address these issues for you. Not in that format. I can tell you that everything you've raised is nonsense. All the things that you're saying you have a crisis of faith about, it's you're having crisis of faith because of your ignorance, not because of the truth of these questions. But all of these people tell me things like, please give me responses with references and citations. And I, I don't, who do they think? I, I just, I can't. It's impossible. So, okay. So let's wrap it up for Surah Al-Qalam. Note, again, beginning of the revelation, what Allah flags, the intellect and the responsibility of writing, the responsibility of narratives, the responsibility of production of knowledge, and preservation of knowledge. When it comes to talking about evidence, Allah rhetorically asked, do you have a book that you're studying? Therefore, signaling that there is a paradigm shift. It is no longer kharq al-'ada. It is no longer the performance of miracles that break the laws of nature that is going to be the evidentiary basis for wrong and right, but it is going to be argument and counter-argument. And at the same time, as we know that the Quran is going to prohibit coercion. So coercion is out, miracles are out, what's left? Argument and counter-argument. Evidence and counter-evidence. The maturity of the intellect and then when it comes to telling us, then it points us immediately to the flags, the most critical things of the past at the beginning of this message. And it is ethics and moral character. And then when it gives an example of what is core to the Islamic message in terms of social ethics, it talks about poverty and sharing wealth. And then, the most important message it gives the Prophet والسلام, that this path 
is a path that will require a great deal of perseverance, sacrifice, and patience. And therefore, there is no room for despair. The fact that this is at the very heart of the earliest revelation speaks volumes as to what is core to the Islamic message. What is the entire trajectory of that message? Remarkably, in Surah Qalam, in the modern age, especially in the modern age, somehow does not, um, is not given the moral weight that it should be given. It, it, it is, while you find a great deal written about it in the tradition, I've noticed that as we get closer to the modern age, it sort of falls off. And I think part of it is that it confronts Muslims with a, with a, a, a rather uncomfortable moral challenge. Um, because if you, if you ponder it and you situate it where it's in its right place in the tradition, it is a thoroughly unsettling surah. Okay, alhamdulillahi rabbil alameen. And that's surah al-qamd. Alhamdulillah, thank you so much. This was incredible as always. And um, especially for what we do here, you know, I'm so struck by, of course, the obvious parallels of focusing on reflection, reasonableness, thinking, intellect, everything that, you know, that we emphasize here that is has been lost. And so just, um, it's so striking and, and Alhamdulillah. I mean, I honestly like thinking about this as like this is the second surah or second revelation, and that it is forgotten. Like we get we get criticized for engaging the tradition and thinking about it critically, and you know, oh, they're trying to modernize the the tradition. They're trying mm -hmm. to, you know, be like open-minded. Who are these people? You know, it's just really <laughs> funny. Yeah, we're trying to change Islam. God forbid. Okay. <laughs> So anyway, um, if you guys want to send any questions through, um, please do. Does anyone have any questions here to get started? Okay, great. Come on, Jim. Thank you so much, Professor. Just to follow up on Grace, I feel like this is a real Asuri Institute sort of <laughs> intellect, <laughs> applied ethics, forgotten in the modern age. <laughs> um, uh, two, two questions, can I ask you? I've got two questions. Are they related? No. Okay, I'll ask the first one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, it's okay. Um, the idea of um, you know stick to principles and don't compromise. Mm -hmm. uh, 
is there a difference between compromising and being compromised? Because I know how you say, you know, any movement that falls into pragmatism and, you know, will fail. But I mean, when I look at like Sunnatul Allah, Allah himself clearly accommodates realities that are not preferable to him. Alcohol, you know, that was gradual. Polygamy, the preference is clearly for monogamy. Slavery. So in kind of, in terms of like applying this today, how do we, how do we accommodate realities we do not like without being compromised? Is that compromising but not being compromised? Yeah, I mean, that's a really good point. Can you paraphrase the question? I mean, the, the question is, the, the, Joe's saying, you know, is there a difference between compromising and being compromised? Uh, because yes, the, the Islamic message on the one hand shows a great difference. I mean, it, it is a pragmatic message in, in the way it approached the prohibition of alcohol and the way it approached uh, things like slavery, it, the way it uh, uh, approached um, a variety of, of um, instrumentalities of law, especially. Um, but at the same time, at, at what point does the message itself become compromised by attempting to accommodate um, reality? And I, I actually think that a lot of the answer is in in, um, in what the early sower themselves underscore as ethical foundations. So, and I don't think it's talking about laws because I think the approach uh, of Islam to legal issues, yes, it's gradualism, um, it, it is, um, it understands law as always serving a goal. And how you reach that goal is often incremental and is often gradual and it's often but if you look at the ethical foundations when what I, I think it's underscoring are the 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 very moral foundations that define the world of knowledge for a Muslim. So, um, the role of the intellect itself is a foundational issue. So if someone comes and says, well, you know, let's, let's not focus so much on education and learning. Um, and let's focus on, you know, it, it's, it, the education is too expensive. And this is actually, we see this in, in real life. I mean, um, uh, uh, the Muslim, Muslim countries spend horribly on education. But not, not if, you, if you recapture the Islamic message. Um, because education is, is one of the basic core things that Allah underscores from the very beginning. Now, it's not an issue of, of, of 
you know, what details come in. But the principle of education itself. Or uh, if someone says, for instance, well, you know, in order to achieve our objectives now, um, we can't afford to focus on studying good manners because we are in a revolutionary stage and in a revolutionary stage we have to fight the enemy. It's one thing to argue, to debate about what, what would count as a principle of mercy as applied in one context or another. But it is another to try to get me to relinquish my search for the principle of mercy itself. Or to say we can't afford a serious. I mean, and actually, I had this discussion with someone. I won't name him because he's not alive anymore. But uh, where I remember, I, I had written something about the the meaning of the changing meaning of compassion, and it was sort of it was philosophical. And he read it, and he said the Islamic movement can't afford such a intellectualized discourse in right now. It's like, you know, you're, you're wasting our time with, with too much thought. And I thought to myself, we can't afford not to have that conversation right now. What, what compassion means from 1400 years ago to our today. And, and to, to analyze all the abstract theoretical issues that are raised when we think through what compassion means and what is foundational and what's changing and what's contingent and what's not contingent what would um, what would count as um, um, as um, uh, I blanked out on the, mean, on the word I'm looking for but um, Anyway, um, contingent morality. Does anyone remember? Applied ethics. Yeah, but there's a word I was, was on the tip of my mind. Relativity. Relativity. No, no. Anyway, okay, doesn't matter. Um, similarly, this whole parable of the garden, I, I think of Oh, that that from a diff people could think about this parable and say, well, wait, it was very reasonable for them to they inherited the property, they're three kids, they have children, and they wanted you know to institute more thorough efficiency measures to make sure not so much crop is picked up by poor people to make sure that, you know, they, but it, it's a real moral challenge to think through the implications of God saying it's not about efficiency and it's not about building a, a you know, a fence around your property and it's about not about excluding the, the poor people, your attitude uh, that exclusionary attitude is a non-starter. To to 
it's a you don't compromise if if someone says well let's you know we're going to build a an islamic movement but let's start the islamic movement with defining very clearly what's mine and what's yours and and keeping the rich rich and the poor poor it's a non-starter it goes nowhere um so while there's no black and white answers no black and white answers but it's an invitation to inquire into what is truly foundational in our morality and what's negotiable and we can't do that by attaching ourselves to another system of thought you know the muslims who are like to be socialists or muslims who like to be capitalists mm -hmm. and then you know thinking derivatively from these traditions uh, I think we can think derivatively from the Quran itself. First, thank you. Uh, first, thank you so much. I just want to echo what Grace said earlier. I mean, this was incredible, as usual, of course. Um, but my question is kind of similar to Joe's, kind of on this notion of compromising. So you mentioned with the parable of the garden, um, how maybe those gardeners thought, oh, after we're gonna we're gonna stop giving you know the extra fruit to the poor people, and maybe we'll just throw like a big feast and call it a day halas. What would how would how would you see this I guess manifesting in today when it comes to for example foreign policy slash national security or um, criminal justice reform and then what would you say I know it's a very broad question but and then what would you say is kind of like the methods to kind of counter this um, I know you just said you know a lot of Muslims you see kind of going this route of just adopting these new movements like socialism and whatnot but what do you think about tactics of boycotting for example or abolition so on and so forth to counter how this similar notion of compromising might manifest today well I mean the, I think of, uh, that is um, possible to paraphrase impossible to paraphrase <laughs> um, sorry I mean, the question is, is, is broad because it's asking, well, you know, how about all these issues of, like, um, the different tactics that are used to resist inequity, whether it's, you know, boycotting or, 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 um, other methods of resistance um, but I think it, it, that's that that could be a, a study it's not it's not a response it, it requires I mean it, many studies many many studies but here's the thing and and maybe that brings us closer to to what is it at the heart of what we're talking about in the Torah and in the Talmud, there are similar parables, in my opinion, none as sophisticated as this parable. But there are similar par parables in the Torah and the Talmud um, 
about ownership, about giving, about generosity. I've read so many philosophical discourses in the Jewish tradition about every parable in, found in the Talmud and the Torah. I mean, just, I can't think of a single parable that doesn't have the school of thought of this rabbinic figure and the school of thought of that rabbinic figure and the school of thought of that rabbinic figure and school of thought of... Now you come to the Islamic parables and there is an unbelievable impoverishment. There is the classical tradition that discussed it within the epistemological frameworks of their day and age, but then you come to basically the 15th century Hizra, and then you hit just complete dryness. So maybe, so we're talking about, you know, um, 15th century, sorry, AD, I said Hijra, I, mean, I meant to say AD. So, I mean, you are, as we get closer to the 16th century AD, it is clear, and this is the rise of European powers and the fall of the Islamic civilization and so on. There's just no, no longer any philosophical discourses about the ethics of these parables. So, you know, what do they mean for modern methods of fighting for justice? I don't know, but what I do know is that it is a betrayal of Al-Qalam wa ma yasturun. When Allah just begins the surah by saying, it's all about the pen and what you write and then gives us a parable, and we have no pen and no writing about it. We, we betrayed everything. And again, you know, sometimes I wonder about like how, how patient God is with us, because if I was God, I would be like fed up. You know, I told you the pen and what you write, and then I give you a parable, and you and you don't use the pen, and you don't use writing, and you don't do anything with it. You know, the hell with you. Um, but so I would imagine God must be fed up with us, uh, because I think the type of questions that you just asked must be asked, and you require a great deal of learning to even talk about them. You're not going to get some mullah figure who went to Azhar to try to learn Arabic for a few years, you know, who've just memorized Riyadh al-Salihin and comes back wearing a jalabiyya and a, and a turban on their head and thinking that the coolest thing is that they can, you know, say a few hadiths and they're obsessed where, with where women are standing in a line of prayer. These are not the people who are going to engage in these type of ethical discourses. You need the most advanced intellectually people. It's not the stupid people. They're, you know, in the same way there are short people and there are tall people, 
short people and tall people. There are also intelligent people and stupid people. <laughs> it's, a, it's a reality of life. And as long as the stupid people go to Islamic sciences, while the smart people go to medical school, there's no hope. Because the stupid people will do stupid things and say stupid things and write stupid things. They're stupid. They can't help themselves. Let's get that on Instagram, yalla. <laughs> oh, that's me. Amen, brother. Amen. <laughs> Thank you. Did you have a question? What was the impact did this surah have on Muslims either that had already converted or that were about to convert? And also what impact reaction did it have on the elite this very early period? That's a good question. The, the what what impact did this have the surah have in the context? I mean, what is remarkable is that if Allah, I mean, it 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 it, it was a surah that got the elite of Quraysh uh, became sworn enemies of the Prophet right away. Sworn enemies because of the descript or because of the reference to the Prophet as a man of great ethical character. Because of the description of people who are uh, vulgar and loud and unkind. And there are all, all these discussions about is it referring to Abu Jahl, is it referring to this person, is it referring to the. Because these were the, the Meccans themselves were saying. What is it? Are you talking about me? Are you talking about you, you? Oh, this is a reference to me, and so they, they became animostic and hostile to the prophet. And the parable of the garden, clearly Mecca took this as a not an implied but an actual explicit criticism of their financial affairs. Are you saying that the poor are entitled to share our wealth? And so we have a lot of a lot of this, and so Subhanallah that the second surah of Revelation, if Allah, I mean the only thing that Allah could have given the Prophet that would have made the the, the Meccans more hostile is to just call them a bunch of names. This was not a surah that was going to earn him any friends among the Meccan elite. The other thing is we don't because the Mecca, because the Islamic message was secret at the beginning, we don't know much about the this, the internal discussions of Muslims about Surah Al Qalam in the first few years. But we know that Surah Al Qalam becomes one of the most cited sur centuries, a few centuries later in the massive translation movement put together by Muslims 
where they started translating the works of Greek philosophers and Greek scientists and Greek mathematicians and um, the uh, Persian tradition and the, uh, they, they become a sponge. The Bayt al-Hikmah, there's even a report that I have not been able to verify that Bayt al-Hikmah in Baghdad had inscribed at the entrance Noon wal Qalam so it played a cultural role that is to, to get this new civilization excited about the idea of learning. Um, yeah. So th there's a few uh, things in the surah that I'm trying to reconcile with the fact that this is a very early revelation and before the public preaching. So the idea of you know being majnun and asatir al-awwalin, like these accusations being hurled, is it uh, is it because um, the Quraysh were aware of the Prophet preaching privately and still opposing him, but it wasn't, it didn't ramp up to the level of persecution yet because they weren't really threatened by him? Or is it predicting a future uh, uh, assault no, of the Prophet? The, 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 the answer is very clear. The, the, the Quraysh was aware from the very beginning from the time that the Prophet went and told his uncle about the message and went, uh, because we know that uh, Abu Lahab demands that his daughter they leave the, the Prophet right away. Mm -hmm. um, uh, they were very aware of his preaching, but what they were not aware of, of Muslims meeting in Dar al-Arqam. So Muslims kept their numbers, and it, the the ones who were public were the the Muslims who were able to be public. So we don't have any evidence, for instance, that Abu Bakr was ever secretly Muslim. He was very publicly Muslim from the very beginning. Uh, and so was Ali ibn Abi Talib. We don't have any evidence that he was secretly Muslim. Mm. Even Aisha was very openly Muslim from the very beginning. But it was the weak Muslims who were secretly Muslim. Can I ask another question? Or? <laughs> okay, uh, okay yeah. yes, go ahead. Oh, Joe had another one? Okay, yeah, go for it. Yeah, I just, uh, if you, like, you know the, the parable of, okay, don't hoard the wealth and share and don't be stingy. And then, so in other words, the Qur'an is setting up an expectation of uh, financial sacrifice. And then verse 46 is saying, ajran." So, I mean, I, I think I understand what this is asking, what's that asking. 
but I don't know if there's more light to be shed on that. No, I guess, I mean, you don't ask, you're not asking them for a financial reward, but the parable speaks for itself because it's not a, a parable about what you're paying the prophet. It's, it's a parable about that you're not going to share with poor people. Um, so it, it, they're, they're, they're talking about two different things. Put people on you know, we have a lot of really good questions. Okay. Um, thank you so much. Um, again, this chapter is is very strange compared to many of the other earlier chapters in which we've studied. It's like very, very philosophically advanced, and it seems that the order in which it's presenting this material is very significant. Um, you said that the intellect and the knowledge first in a personal sense, which then immediately then followed by personal ethics and moral in a personal sense, which then leads to construction of a ethical and moral society that you cannot get to that end result but for going through this in a very systematic sense. Um, is that correct? And also, if it is, then... Um, I was thinking about the same thing that Rami was thinking about in verse 2, where it's, it's talking about insanity. And I'm wondering whether the link is there, that if one rejects this message of perfecting the intellect first, and perfecting the personal morality second, and then looking towards um, perfecting the society ethics, that you will have insane people with insane ways of living in an insane system, that cannot be fixed but for going back to this particular formula? The, the, the question is that there, there's, the, the surah is philosophically advanced and, and, um, and I think that's, that's why it's sort of, a, uh, um, its greater impact is I would say even not until the Abbasid period, um, so a whole century passes before the great we see the greatest impact of the surah. But anyway, that you know, at first the the, the call for the intellect, personal ethics, and social ethics, um, and what Shahan is saying, well, you know, is there in a an a meaning here um, that um, that if if you fail in this process, that if you don't pay attention to the intellect and ethics and social ethics, that in fact what you you, you what besets you is insanity. Uh, in the in the the tradition itself, they don't talk about that what besets you is insanity, but they, they relate the failure to understand the role of the intellect, 
the, the failure to be responsible about the, 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 the art of writing, what you write and how you write it. Adab al-Kitab. Um, and that's why, by the way, that why a lot of, you know, why Muslims, uh, 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 this whole literary genre of Adab al-Katib and Adab al-Khitab and, and how you write people, and with, which Muslims produce some very beautiful things. Uh, you know, anyone that reads um, uh, Subh al-Asha, you know, struck by they 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 turned writing into into a, a moral enterprise, into sort of an ethical enterprise. There's a proper way to greet people. There's a proper way to end writing. There's a proper way to talk about. Even when the, what we call the dibaja, uh, a lot of modern Muslims don't understand why the dibaja, and they think it's annoying. You know, when you say go on and say amma bad. Uh, and a lot of modern Muslims think that, oh, what's the point of this? Well, the, the point of this is actually an ethical uh, enterprise. It's a part of an ethical engagement that they thought writing must be anchored in. But anyway, what in the tradition, what they did relate it to is Ayyukum um, al-Maftun. Which of you is deluded? Because they always, they do talk about the the delusions of those who uh, it's very interesting there there is some rasail where scholars are um, writing criticizing the uh, uh, there were certain poets in the Islamic tradition that were known as the poets of um, promiscuity. These were poets that would write about drinking alcohol and having sex, basically. That, that's all they wrote about. And there's some reason where these scholars are trying to point, convince people why it's wrong to use your poetry to describe that. You would expect that they're going to say, well, you know, alcohol is haram, and you're going to go to hell. But actually, they spent a lot of time talking about the immorality of using words in this way, that, that they're betraying the functions for which God gave humans the ability to use words, and, and especially one of the objections that were often uh, is that, well, you know, a lot of these poets don't necessarily get drunk or have sex, they just write about it, but they don't do it. And so the deal is, why is that a betrayal of the ethics of speech? Which is very fascinating, if you understand it in, in, in its, in its um, not insanity, but the idea of delusions, of, so that's what they write about. I haven't thought about the narrative in the surah about Junoon in connection to a failure to observe the value or the responsibility of all the things that the surah flags. I haven't thought about 
the connection between that and Junoon. It's an interesting idea. I'm not sure. Okay. I'm gonna, does anyone else have any questions here? I'm going to jump into the interactive group. Okay, salamu alaikum, Professor, and jazakallah for another insightful session. Um, so far as your points on uh, contextualizing ethics and moral character for our own epistemological consciousness, how do we discern and distinguish where to draw the line between moral relativism, people cherry-picking, so to speak, and shifting morality in to fit whims and desires, versus truly staying within the boundaries of Islam and what Allah would desire our ethics and values to be, insofar as sin, etc.? You know, I'll give you a very practical response because um, the, the, any any broad response I give you, like an abstract broad response, um, is wrong. It's going to be wrong because oh, thank you. Any broad abstract response um, it, it, it is. Uh, because the, the, it's it's oversimplification, it's reductionism that, by definition, um, is misleading. What all of this is designed to do is two things: is at the personal level, you personally, m to be sensitized to. Um, that Islam is about ethics, A, and B, to be sensitized that pragmatism must be seen with a healthy dosage of skepticism. It's not, I'm not telling you don't be a pragmatist, but have a, dose, a healthy dosage of skepticism as to anything that would make you compromise an ethical principle. So scrutinize the compromise. After you scrutinize it, it might you might be you might be convinced that it's it's warranted, it's reasonable, it's necessary. But you owe an obligation of scrutiny. That's one. Two, all that means, everything that we talk about, is that for, is for Muslims to recuperate their health, they need to have healthy discourses upon these issues. Healthy discourses meaning what? Mean that instead of the silliness and the largely unintelligent and dumb discourses that you hear in Muslim spaces, because dumb people generate dumb discourses. Someone who's dumb is not going to say something who's, that's smart. It's just not going to happen. It's like if you don't know a language, you can't speak it. If I don't know French, I'm not gonna. You're not gonna hear French from me. It's the same thing. I don't know why we expect dumb people to suddenly be smart. It's it's not gonna happen. You want something smart discourses? 
You've got to put smart people upon it. How do you do that? By investing into investing in your intelligence assets. There are societies that have a Bach and a Mozart or as I was reminded recently, a Yo-Yo Ma <laughs> and these societies invest in their Bach and Mozart and in their Yo-Yo Ma and so they shine into existence. And then you have societies that have a Baka, Mozart, and a Yo-Yo Ma, and they bury them. They kill them off. That's the difference. That's the entire difference. What is, as Muslims, you, you look in your Islamic center, you look in your mosque, you look in your town, you look in your neighborhood, you look into the school that your kids go, go to, you look into a country and ask yourself, what type of society are you contributing to? If there is a Bach, if there is a Mozart, if there is a Yoyuma, is that person going to excel or is that person going to die? Because I assure you, Allah doesn't give Europe the only Bachs and Mozarts and Yoyumas and or in the U.S. No, Allah distributes that very fairly. But the difference is, Muslims kill talent off. They destroy it. The talent goes nowhere. And the untalented are the ones that are pushed to the surface. They're the ones that become the heads of our everything. That's, that, that, you know, everyone that tells me what is the solution, I have nothing, that, that is it. That, that's the entire thing. How, because do you know how many Muslims, you know, the express frustration if they have any hint of creativity or originality about Muslim spaces that it kills it off? And in order for us to, in fact, nourisher, nurture creativity and originality, we must be comfortable with the possibility, not the possibility, but the probability of error. People need to be wrong 50% of the time to be right 50% of the time. If we insist from the very beginning, say the right thing, 90% you know, of the time, it's a no-go. Um, thank you. Okay, I have a good last question. Um, dear Professor, thank you. Given that today is our 30th Project Illumin class, it seems appropriate to talk about your living legacy. First, how do you envision listeners at home processing these halakas? For example, do you see us taking notes, sitting back, and absorbing the materials or something else? Do you envision listeners experiencing just personal or interfamilial transformation, or do you imagine us doing something more with these materials? Same question for the research fellows. And do you envision the research fellows later teaching your halakas? Wow. That's a brilliant question. Guess who? Again. Rafida? Uh-huh. <laughs> yeah. She always asks the most brilliant questions. <laughs> um, is she there? Yeah. 
Um, yeah, no, I mean, listen, uh, all teachers have in their heart, um, you are, a teacher is in, the, the, the inheritors of a teacher are their books, but even more than important than their books are their students. Um, and so, yeah, I, the, the material, in the immediate sense, I'm hoping that people do undergo personal transformations. Yes, to improve their personal lives, to become better Muslims, to become better family members, to become better community members, to understand that Islam is about service and that Islam is about giving that you you understand that you don't think of your life as simply I live once and I die and that's it but that I give and I serve because there is a hereafter and that the real life is the life that comes in the hereafter <clears throat> and that I am investing for my hereafter and my investment is to serve and to give and to for a Muslim, you know, to to value knowledge and to value wisdom and to value study, and I'm hoping that that would reflect in the way you raise your children and in the way you invest in your children. Maybe if you're a teacher, in the way you approach your job, uh, if you're if you're maybe in the decision to become a scholar or not to become a scholar. All of that. These are the, the, all the, the, you know, when, whenever you give a lecture, whenever you give a talk, you, you're hoping for all these, like, um, little sprouts. But the big thing that you're hoping for is that someday there will be people who will not shoot from the hip who will take the corpus, it took you a lifetime to study. Many, many, many years of keeping your mouth shut, hiding somewhere away from the public's eye, reading and reading and reading, studying and studying and studying, took you many, many years. You read thousands of books, listened to thousands of lectures. The brain is a remarkable thing. To for an ummah to produce one good scholar, it takes such a huge investment. People don't realize that a genuine scholar is a huge communal investment, even unintentional investment. Usually, the way we Muslims have the investment is that that scholar borrows from credit cards to buy books. So the investment is made by credit cards, banks, non-Muslim banks. The investment is, is made by secular institutions, non-Muslim institutions that give that scholar scholarships, fellowships, that, you know, every time the law school gives me a book fund that I spend on books, that's a law school investment. That's 
all of that goes into making a scholar. So all of, can you imagine all of that effort that went into producing the thought that is offered? So what you're hoping for is that in turn, there will be students that will not shoot by, from the hip, but that will take that thought as seriously as when it was produced. So they will spend, spend countless hours studying that thought, tracing that thought, analyzing that thought, because we, we build incrementally on each other. Part of our problem as Muslims is that we always keep in reinventing the wheel. You know, Malik bin Nabi will do what Malik bin Nabi does, and then Khalid al-Fadl will come and do what Khalid al-Fadl does, and, and there will be no connection between what Malik bin Nabi built and what Khalid al-Fadl built, and that's tragic. You know, nothing in my thought is not deeply indebted to everything that people have offered before me. And yes, you pray that those who have not been given the intellect will be given the financial resources. And those who cannot invest, make the intellectual investment, will make the financial investment to support those who can make the intellectual investment. Everyone should know what they're, what they're, they're, they're good about or good for. You know, it, it, it doesn't make sense for someone who's good at making money to decide I'm going to wear the hat of a scholar and pretend to be a scholar just because I have money. And it doesn't make sense for someone who's good about scholarship to try to, you know, trade stocks and <laughs> make money in the stock market when they're gonna, it's going to end up disastrously and they're going to end up in the poorhouse. Um, division of labor in every sense of the word. And I'm hoping that, that there will be a class of students that will take the thought and develop it in so many different ways that it will, you know, it, it, it will spark something. Uh, but, you know, I believe that in the same way that you know, Allah creates an intellect that is drawn to the thought of Sheikh Muhammad al-Ghazali, another intellect that's drawn to the thought of Malik bin Nabi, another intellect that's drawn to the thought of Saeed Gaudet, another intellect that, and that's the way it should be. In the same way that you know, each musical composer is drawn to a school within classical music and is indebted to, there are, you know, great musicians who think Mozart is boring, but they love Wagner. And there are musicians who think Wagner is stupid. That's the nature of how things and talent work. There's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but we Muslims continue to not take Islam very seriously because we allow the least intelligent to go into Islamic studies. We leave Islamic studies to the least gifted and the least intelligent 
to the losers in society. It's like, you know, losers come to Islamic studies. Anyone who's not a loser, do something else. <laughs> Amen. I think that's a great way to end. <laughs> Thank you so much um, for another brilliant, absolutely brilliant session.